0: You're listening to Enchanted, a podcast on the history of magic, sorcery, and witchcraft. I'm Corinne Wieben. While researching today's story, our producer, Tom, once again found way too much good stuff for a single episode. So today marks the first in a two part series. Today's episode examines the witchcraft trials of Anne Peter's daughter in 16th century Norway, while the second will explore the many works Anne's story inspired including multiple plays and operas, and even a heavy metal album. But for now, let's get on with the show. She insisted on her innocence, even as they lit the fire. On April 7, 1590... Anne Peter's daughter was burned for witchcraft in the city of Bergen, in the kingdom of Denmark, Norway. Remarkably, this was not the first time Anne had been tried for witchcraft. Though witch trials would become more frequent in the following century, Anne was one of the first women in Norway to be tried and executed as a witch. And while most of those accused of witchcraft were women of low social status, Anne was born to privilege... How did the widow of a prominent clergyman find herself the defendant in multiple witch trials? For the answer, we have to go back a generation to the beginning of the Protestant Reformation in the Kingdom of Denmark-Norway and the tumultuous reign of King Christian II. The Protestant Reformation officially kicked off on October 31st, 1517, when an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther nailed his 95 points of argument against the sale of indulgences by the Catholic Church to the door of Wittenberg Cathedral in Germany. By 1521, Luther's refusal to recant his position on reform led to a schism in the Church with backing from powerful princes who supported Luther's agenda. Over the next several decades, Lutheranism spread throughout the Holy Roman Empire and into Scandinavia, and the first battle lines were drawn between Catholics and Protestants. The early decades of the Reformation in Scandinavia saw a desire for slow transition and conservative policies. This is most likely due to the precarious political situation of the kings of Denmark. A brief union between the kingdoms of Denmark, Norway, and Sweden officially dissolved in 1523, with Sweden declaring its independence and crowning its own king, who swiftly brought Protestantism to the country. In that same year, King Frederick I of Denmark was also crowned after the successful overthrow and imprisonment of his nephew and predecessor, Christian II. And within the year, Frederick once again brought Norway into reluctant union with Denmark. His death in 1553 sparked a war between Catholic supporters of the former King Christian II and Frederick's son, also helpfully named Christian. Frederick's son won the day, much to the dismay of Danish Catholics, and was crowned King Christian III of Denmark and Norway in 1537. So when Protestantism arrived in Norway in 1537, it was by royal decree. Although Christian III made Protestantism official in Copenhagen, he did so with an eye toward maintaining stability in the rest of his kingdom, Not wanting to disrupt his realm's economic or political workings, Christian III allowed much of Catholicism to remain, especially in Norway. The population largely remained Catholic, Catholic churches retained their status and property, and even if you were to walk into a Reformed church, you were likely to see many of the same decorations, the same rituals, and even, in many cases, the same priest. most importantly, since the adoption of the reformed religion brought with it a further implied surrender of Norwegian independence to Denmark, the king remained diplomatically cautious. In a letter to his governor in Norway, the king urged his officials to act, quote, gently and cannily, so that, quote, no dismay and discord may arise among the poor, simple, and foolish peasantry in the country. But by the 1560s, the next generation of reformers had grown impatient and began pushing for more radical changes with a new urgency. One Danish theologian complained that the pace of change was so slow that even in reformed churches, the people, as he put it, quote, "...unfortunately, so help us God, will not allow one single idol or image to be removed from their churches." Adding to this pressure, was the fact that the Catholic Church had finally begun to create a program to answer the critiques of the Protestant movement, doubling down on traditional doctrine and policy at the Council of Trent, an 18-year-long ecumenical council convened in 1545. Before its conclusion in 1563, the Council of Trent encouraged clergy throughout Europe to push back against Protestant reformers, and rejected nearly all points of Protestant belief and practice. The result, predictably, was the equal and opposite reaction of increased radicalization among Protestants. By this time, King Christian III had died, and in 1559 his son and heir was crowned King Frederick II. Thanks largely to his father's cautious religious and economic policies, Frederick inherited a strong and prosperous kingdom, with political power centralized on the crown's authority. Despite the influx of Calvinism and other more radical Protestant ideologies into his kingdom, Frederick continued his father's policy of non-interference, preferring to ignore calls for Lutheran leaders to unite against other Protestant groups. However, Frederick died, suddenly and unexpectedly, in 1588, at the age of 53. His son was just 11 years old when he was crowned King Christian IV. With the king too young to rule on his own, the regency of Denmark-Norway was handed over to a ruling council, led by Christian's chancellor. It's during the reign of this council that Anne Peter's daughter was tried for witchcraft a second time, and executed in 1590. But Anne's troubles began much earlier, in the midst of growing religious and political tensions, starting with the death in her husband's family. In 1552, Anne Peters' daughter, born to a family of city officials, left her comfortable family home to marry Absalon Peterson Beyer, a scholar and Lutheran clergyman from the prominent city of Bergen. After losing both his parents at the age of six, the orphaned Absalon was cared for by his foster father Giebel Peterson, the first Lutheran bishop of Bergen. Gabel sent Absalon to attend university in Copenhagen, where he met Anne's brother, Soren, and in Wittenberg, where he studied under one of the leaders of the Lutheran Reform Movement. After Absalon returned to Bergen and married Anne, Giebel secured his foster son an appointment as a theological lecturer at Bergen's cathedral school. But soon after, in 1557, Bishop Gabel died. Absalon had lost a powerful champion, and Bergen had lost one of the last champions of a slow transition to Lutheranism. Despite the objections of the city council, Gebel's successor, Jens Skelderup, soon embarked on an extensive campaign to remove religious images from Bergen's churches. In 1568, a commission of several Danish noblemen paid Bergen a routine visit and were horrified to find Catholic religious images, including wax sculptures, engravings, and side altars, still littering the Protestant churches there. Skjeldrup took this as his opportunity to press reform more urgently by removing those religious images that still remained. When the citizenry and city council pushed back, Absalon, now in his second year as the official royal chaplain in Bergen, took the bishop's side lamenting in his diary that the secular authorities clung to idolatry because the images were still, as he put it, worshipped by some old women. The city council was forced to relent, but tensions remained between the reforming arm of the church and the secular authorities of Bergen. By Christmas of 1570, the new bishop not only removed images and side altars, he also went beyond required regulations by removing five of the seven images on the high altar of the cathedral. When city officials objected to this removal of beloved religious figures, Skeldrup declared that even those last two remaining images would also have to go. It may be this tension between city officials and Absalon that led to the royal chaplain's wife being accused of witchcraft for the first time in 1575. Fifteen years after Gable Peterson's death, Anne was accused of using witchcraft to cast a fatal illness on her husband's foster father, so that, as the record states, Master Absalon, her husband, could become bishop. The case against Anne was not a strong one, and the accusation was most likely intended to damage Absalon's reputation and authority in the city. Thanks to his position as royal chaplain, Absalon secured a pardon for Anne from King Frederick II, and she was freed from all charges. The procedure in witch trials in post-Reformation Denmark-Norway was similar to a civil lawsuit. An injured party must be present to directly accuse the alleged witch and to testify to the harm she had done to them or their property. In many cases, the accused could be acquitted based on the unreliability of the accuser or witness testimony. This was especially true when the accuser or witness was a relative or a known enemy of the accused. However, local courts tended to factor in the community's feelings about both witchcraft and the accused into their judgments. To prevent witchcraft accusations from being used as a local political tool, a measure that was probably inspired by the case against Anne a year earlier, King Frederick II declared in his 1576 Kalendborg Articles, that no one convicted of witchcraft in a local court should be punished until their sentence was confirmed by a higher county court. After this ordinance was put into place, around half of those accused in lower courts were acquitted by county courts. But once accused, the suspicion of witchcraft was difficult to shake off. Unlike in Catholic areas where inquisitorial procedure employed torture during the trial to elicit a confession from a perceived heretic, Protestant officials in Denmark-Norway made regular use of torture after the accused was convicted of witchcraft. This was meant to give convicted witches a final opportunity to fully confess their diabolic crimes before their execution, while a priest prayed and urged them to name any other witches involved. Understandably, many of those convicted of witchcraft named others in order to appease officials and end their ordeal, as in the 1612 trial of Marin Neal's daughter, who denounced another woman from her town while under torture. Before her execution, however, Marin retracted her accusation. While the testimony of a convicted witch was not considered strong enough to lead to subsequent trials, Those who found themselves named discovered that their neighbors and local officials regarded them with increasing suspicion. The woman Marin Neal's daughter named, though Marin later recanted, was tried and convicted of witchcraft just seven years later. suffered the same stigma after standing accused of witchcraft in 1575. Despite the royal pardon and her prominent position in the community, the stigma of witchcraft remained. It didn't help matters that, after he obtained his wife's pardon, Absalom died within a matter of months. Now a wealthy widow, Anne received further favor from the king, who freed her from all taxation. A combination of jealousy and suspicion surrounded Anne. She became increasingly isolated, and as rumors continued to circulate about her, she reacted with increasing hostility. After 15 years of growing isolation and tension, Anne was summoned once again to stand trial for witchcraft. This time... She stood accused of murdering six people, including a child, using diabolic powers to cause fatal illness in each. The witnesses who testified against her included family, friends, and neighbors, and even her own maid, Elena. Elena, who had served Absalon and Anne for over two decades, testified that at Christmastide, Anne transformed her into a flying horse and used her for three nights to travel to a gathering of witches. While there, Alina said she overheard the witches plotting to sink all ships sailing into the largest port in Norway, to raise all mountains to the ground, and to wreak havoc with a massive tidal wave. As the witches moved to carry out their evil plot, however, an angel all in white arrived and prevented them. Other witnesses testified that they had seen Anne in the company of demons. At first, Anne refused to attend the trial, saying that the charges against her were patently false and ought to be dismissed. Officials, however, dragged her into court, where she defended herself with remarkable willpower and skill. When witnesses accused her of killing a child, she quipped, Many children die. I have not killed them all. But despite her standing in the community and protests from members of the Lutheran clergy, the court found her guilty of witchcraft and sentenced her to death by burning. She died on April 7, 1590, two days shy of the 15th anniversary of the death of her husband. The remarkable thing about Anne Pater's daughter's trial is not the charges against her or her conviction. The remarkable thing is how early it took place. Compared to the sheer number of trials for witchcraft in Denmark and Norway in the 17th century, trials for witchcraft in Anne's lifetime were rare and sporadic. The extensive witch-hunting fever that seized Scandinavian officials from the 1620s onward had not yet taken hold. Of the roughly 800 people tried for witchcraft in Norway between 1539 and 1754, about 300 were sentenced to death, but only 12 were prosecuted a second time following a prior acquittal. Like many women accused of witchcraft over the centuries, Anne may have had little control over her own fate, both of her trials appear to have been motivated by the same tensions, suspicions, and jealousies that would fuel witchcraft accusations for the next century. In this case, Anne found herself trapped between the citizens of Bergen and the clergy whose reforms they increasingly resented. The foundations of Anne's conviction were laid with Gable Peterson's death, and Skjeldrup and Absalon's push to strip Bergen's churches of their beloved religious images. A few factors explain why witchcraft became a central concern and why death was invariably the punishment for witchcraft in the kingdom of Denmark-Norway. The first is that Norway's witchcraft trials, including Anne Pater's daughter's trials in 1575 and 1590, followed the increased radicalization of reform in the country's transition to Lutheranism. Prior to the Reformation, all magic, whether beneficial or harmful, was considered heretical under Catholic law and mostly remanded to church courts for prosecution. After the Reformation, the official legal stance on magic began to change, and without church courts or Catholic officials to oversee them, all trials for witchcraft fell under secular jurisdiction. With the theological aspect of heresy gone from witchcraft, the accused were judged by the harm they had allegedly done their fellow citizens. By the 17th century, the Ordinance of 1617 would distinguish between true witches, those accused of making a pact with the devil, and practitioners of secret arts, Which included beneficial magic, anti witchcraft, and divination. The Protestant theology of Denmark Norway held true witchcraft as a crime that provoked God's wrath above all others. It fell to the king and his judicial officials to torture and execute witches, not necessarily to save their souls, but to demonstrate to a jealous God that the king would do all in his power to cleanse his realm of witches before divine wrath, in the form of famine, disease, or war, could destroy it. On June 26, 2002, a memorial stone was unveiled in the city of Bergen. This stone, called the Witch Stone, stands as a monument to those executed for witchcraft in Bergen between 1550 and 1700. The inscription reads, 350 sacrificed to the fire in a miscarriage of justice. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to Enchanted wherever you listen and help spread the word by rating and reviewing Enchanted on Apple Podcasts. This week's episode was produced by Thomas Ignatius and Corinne Wieben, with original music by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com. You can get in touch with us via email at enchantedpodcast at gmail.com, or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Enchanted Podcast, and on Twitter at EnchantedPod. To learn more about the show or to become a supporter and help keep the magic going, please visit EnchantedPodcast.net. I'm Corinne Wieben. Thank you for listening and stay enchanted.